Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at the Malvinas Falklands War. Why did it happen, and what does it tell us about how dictators decide whether to launch military action? Hi, my name is Jennifer Hudson, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. The 40th anniversary of the Malvinas-Falklands War of 1982 is coming up in just a few weeks' time. There will no doubt be many retrospectives, which here in the UK will focus on the actions of the British government and whether the UK's response would be different if a similar event took place today. But today we're looking at an Argentine perspective on the war. Why did the then Argentine government invade the islands? How was the conflict perceived in Argentina at the time, and how is it seen today? In understanding the thinking of Argentina's rulers in 1982, can we gain insights into the calculations of authoritarian leaders who might be contemplating military action today? Not least, of course, President Vladimir Putin of Russia. Well, I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Dr. Louis Scannoni, who has recently joined the UCL Department of Political Science as lecturer in international relations. His research explores the determinants of international conflict and its effect on the dynamics of state formation, particularly in Latin America. One of his recent papers focuses on why Argentina invaded the Malvinas in 1982, and I'm pleased to say he joins me now to have this discussion about this paper. Lewis, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be UCL and in the podcast. Well, let's get started, because this is really interesting, not least because of, of the, the anniversary that's approaching. Um, but can you give our listeners a little bit of background? You know, where are the Malvinas Falkland Islands? Um, what's their history? And what happened in particular between April and June of 1982? Yes, the Falklands uh, Islands are an archipelago in the South Atlantic, some 500 kilometers outside the coast of Argentina. And although they were first settled by the French in 1764, Britain and Spain disputed their sovereignty during most of colonial times. Then, after independence, Argentinian authorities exercised some sovereignty over the islands until they were expelled by the British in an incident in around 1833. And since then, the islands uh, had de facto belonged to the UK and are contested by Argentina, although with different levels of intensity. In the 19th century, for example, although Argentines never stopped claiming the islands, the issue was not prominent in domestic politics nor seen as relevant diplomatically. With the rise of nationalism in the 20th century, however, the Malvinas became a more salient topic in the foreign policy of the country, and after World War II and with decolonization became a prominent debate uh, in the United Nations General Assembly, and even the negotiated settlement of this issue became plausible. As you were saying, however, this year we commemorate the 40th anniversary of the war, which was the only military attempt uh, by the Argentines to reassert control over the islands. Um, The war happened when Argentina was the closest to assert its claims diplomatically and domestic support for the cause had peaked. The UK won the war in two months, leading to the reassertion of British sovereignty and eliminating prospects of negotiated settlement. So because of the 40-year landmark, now the topic is back in the press and 
Only last week, for example, Argentine President Alberto Fernandez met uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping and China expressed its support for the Argentine claims, which is one of the reasons why the topic has been recently in the British press. Thank you for that that bit of background. I think that kind of sets the stage for for what we're going to talk about um, and the the really insightful analysis in this paper. Um, I want to ask about the data that you draw on for this paper because you're relying on um, a set of declassified documents uh, that were declassified in 2012. And as you note in the paper, these these uh, documents have quotes directly from Argentina's military leaders. So tell us a little bit about this new data set that informs the paper. Yeah, so so with time, new archival material and accounts of the war have been made available to the public. And this release you were talking about in particular uh, is a release of data by the Argentine presidency about the investigations conducted by Lieutenant Benjamin Rattenbach after the war, the so-called the Rattenbach Report, uh, which were basically interviews that uh, this lieutenant of the Argentine army conducted with the three members of the junta and some 100 officials, asking them directly about why did Argentina decide to invade despite the potential response from the UK and asking them about their perception of what went wrong with the conduct of war and why Argentina lost. So this is very fresh information. These interviews were conducted just one year after the war and remained classified until recently. And therefore, it's the kind of information that can be very useful for teasing out the causes of a war. And and this is some information that is now being leveraged by political scientists and historians. So in the article, which uh, was recently published in Security Studies, you, your central question here, what motivates you is, why did the Argentine government decide to invade the islands? Um, give, give our listeners a little kind of background of what kind of government was that in 1982? Yes, yeah, so in 1982, Argentina was under an autocratic, authoritarian regime. Um, the military had taken over in 1976 and had started a repressive campaign leading to thousands of killings, tens of thousands of killings and massive human rights violations. Uh, this had provoked some international isolation of the Argentine uh, regime, but with the election of Ronald Reagan to the presidency in 81, then the, the Argentine government was already by 82 closing up with the U.S. again. But more specifically to your question, Argentina was governed by a junta, and juntas are uh, authoritarian regimes, of course, but not personalistic ones. And in this particular junta, the military governs as an institution with the kind of joint decision-making process involving all of the armed forces, is the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force. And these three forces govern as a sort of triumvirate, um, with the president being the commander-in-chief of the Army but where decision-making was in general kind of collective. Um, so I think it's fair to say with regard to the generalization of this argument to, to other authoritarian regimes, and Argentina was definitely not democratic, but uh, it was a particular kind of authoritarian regime. Okay, um, so let's get let's get into the the setup of of the paper. So what you do in in the article is is say that the the kind of traditional explanations in the literature for why the government launched the attack uh, tend to focus on on two explanations: um, one, diversionary war, and two, the miscalculation thesis. Can you just kind of give us a, a very quick overview of those? Yes, of course. 
Well, in the literature, there are, as you said, two main explanations, uh, none of which actually relate to regime type, you know, the factor we were talking about just a moment ago, and which we question in this article. Um, those in the audience who know something about the Falklands Malvinas War uh, must have heard the notion that the government in Argentina was struggling and decided to use the war as a pretext to divert the attention of the public and even consolidate their domestic position. If you have heard this interpretation, even if not knowing much about the war itself, it is probably because the Malvinas Falklands have become the paradigmatic case to illustrate diversionary war theory in textbooks in general. Uh, this explanation proposes that wars are often mechanisms to create a rally around effect, uh, rally around the flags or effect, and boost domestic support for governments. However, this diversionary war theory has received little attention beyond. Uh, this particular case and a handful of other cases, because governments that are struggling often do not want to create an extra source of trouble, and wars are not always popular, in particular if you cannot win them. So in the case of the Falklands Malvinas, uh, this theory had gained considerable credence because of a quite uh, unique correlation, I would say, between uh, main demonstrations against the government that took place on March 30, two days before the actual invasion, and the landing on April the 2nd, 1982, which has made this hypothesis very credible, and therefore a lot of people draw on that. The other main theory out there is what we call in this article the miscalculation hypothesis. According to this, the Argentina government was unable to foresee that Britain would respond, uh, or thought it would respond more mildly, and that the U.S. would have intervened to avert the war or even sided with Argentina. Proponents of this miscalculation thesis focus on the so-called fog of war, and they argue that the lack of information um, on or basically the sheer private nature of military information explains why rational actors who would be better off achieving a negotiated solution um, ended up in this irrational war. So interpreted as a rationalist explanation for war, it is fair to say that this miscalculation hypothesis has had more empirical support broadly in the study of warfare um, than this diversionary war theory uh, and is much more influential in political science Yet we still contest it in this context. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna pick that up um, in in just a minute because I think it's it's really fascinating um, in the way you go about in the paper, the way you kind of refute, particularly around kind of uh, why miscalculation is is not the the right explanation here. Um, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit about methodology. Um, and as political scientists, we we you know we typically have kind of a motivating question. Um, uh, we've got some data and we've got a methodological choice that we're making about how to interrogate that. And in this paper, you use counterfactual process tracing. Um, could you unpick that a little? Could you explain to our listeners what is counterfactual process tracing um, and what it means in practice? So counterfactual process tracing is a technique that's usually used to analyze single case studies, although it could be used in the context of multiple case studies. But in our case in particular, this was clearly the case, right? We had just one historical case 
And we wanted to do two things. First, see that our own theory um, survived this test, basically, or passed the test. And second, try to see if these two main alternative hypotheses that we just mentioned also survived the test when confronted to their own observational implications or empirical implications, right? So counterfactual process tracing is a technique that is useful in this context. And basically what it does is to tease out the causal processes implied by a certain explanation before going to the sources and find whether the theory is supported or not by the evidence, right? So for example, if one says that Argentina went to war to generate domestic support toward the junta. The counterfactual implied in that sentence is that the presence of high domestic support or in the presence of high domestic support, Argentine authorities would not have decided to take the islands by force. So making this counterfactual clear, one can then go and take a look at different implications, like when precisely the decisions were made, what exactly were the military thinking at the moment, um, what was the level of support uh, at that exact moment when the decision was made, etc. Right? In the example of the miscalculation hypothesis, the counterfactual implied is clearly that had the Argentine government known that Britain would send this, its fleet to the South Atlantic or respond militarily, uh, then Argentina would not have invaded. And then there is this process tracing part of it, of, of the method, um, which is uh, which basically points to the fact that these counterfactuals are often thought as sequences or imply a certain sequencing of events. So, for example, in the case of the Versionary War counterfactual, it is kind of implied that if the military were concerned about domestic support for the junta, if that was the main reason for the invasion, then a plan should have been hatched to communicate the success of the invasion and rally the people to Plaza de Mayo, in this case, like the main square in Argentina where the people rally in support for the government or against it. Um, so we should be able to find sequenced evidence of uh, first popular discontent, second, the military discussing war as some way to deal with this popular discontent, and thirdly, that the military actually communicated uh, the war or had an effort in that direction, um, because all of that is implied by the theory, right? All of this sequence. Okay, so let's um, let's maybe take a deep dive into to each one of those and in turn, because you spend the first half of the paper um, kind of refuting, I think, uh, each one of these uh, explanations. So why do you argue that the diversionary war explanation is wrong? That you know the the hunter did this to kind of um, make the public forget about how bad things were going in in Argentina. Yeah. Well, as, as I was saying before, right, this method is, is nice to, to disqualify explanations if they don't feed the, the, the theoretical narrative in a way, right? Uh, so the things, basically what we do here is we laid out these uh, theoretical expectations and then we go and see if the data matches. So we find three reasons to disqualify diversionary war theory. First, we find that the junta had already acted aggressively in contexts where popular support for the regime was high. In 1976, when the military took over, they enjoyed high support. And yet the same year, the Argentine Navy made several shots across the bow of a British ship called the Shackleton, uh, almost causing war with the UK. One year later, Argentina occupied the Tule Islands, uh, territory also in dispute with Great Britain, and started to work on the plans to retake the Malvinas themselves. These plans were then formally proposed to the Junta in 1978, 
And also in 1978, the junta intended to capture disputed islands around the Cape Horn and the disputed islands in the Beagle Channel, triggering a mediation of the Pope that stopped war with Chile by a few hours. All of this was happening in 1978 when the government had reduced inflation to the lowest levels in decades. The economy was growing at 10%. Civil war against guerrillas had been brought to an end and Argentina organized and won the FIFA World Cup, a football World Cup. Um, so beyond a minority of committed human rights advocates in general, the Argentine public were broadly behind the government and supporting the government. So there is no correlation, as we see it, between the popularity of the junta and its aggressive behavior on the international realm. The second piece of evidence that we find against the diversionary war is that the junta had decided to attack two to three months before its popularity started to decline. The formal decision to land during 1982 was made on the 5th of January, which was more or less three months before the occupation, and at least two months before the domestic front deteriorated. The testimonies of six officials involved in the planning, and that is three members of the task force that planned the invasion and the Navy chiefs of staff, all confirmed that the decision to carry out the landing occurred even before during December 1981. Uh, and this is interesting because Caltieri, the Argentine president back then, uh, was not facing any domestic unrest. The economy was going well. And uh, on the contrary, he was enjoying kind of quiet honeymoon uh, before uh, summer holidays in, in the Southern Hemisphere. And the third and final piece of evidence that we find against diversionary war theory is that the military had no plans for domestic psychological campaigns or so-called psychological campaigns to organize this rally around the flag effect. Um, if the main objective of the war was to influence public opinion, the junta should have analyzed how war would affect it and carefully prepare a propaganda campaign. Yet uh, the attitude of the military was one of disregard in this, in this respect. Okay, I think I, that, that's a real clear uh, kind of explication of, of the evidence um, against the diversionary war explanation, um, you offer similar kind of evidence for miscalculation. So, so take us through that briefly. Yes, and the other uh, theory, this miscalculation um, hypothesis seems to be proven wrong by three, also uh, three pieces of information. First, that the Argentine military had correctly calculated in several intelligence reports that the British would respond to the attack as they did. Um, in our research, we found at least six intelligent reports produced between 1979 and 1981 that warned about a sizable military response from Great Britain. <clears throat> uh, for example, the Secretariat of Strategic Planning prepared an intelligent report in 1980 that argued war with Great Britain would uh, ensue for sure if Argentina decided to occupy the islands. And also the naval intelligence assessed that uh, it even one year before the war, that Britain would respond with a proportional force if Argentina uh, disembarked in the islands. Uh, so no report actually contradicted this provision. And the second piece of evidence that we find against this theory is that um, basically the military knew almost everything of relevance, uh, that is, that Britain was going to respond, that Washington would support London, etc. On a phone call that Rutland Reagan uh, and Galtieri had on the evening of the day before the invasion, on April, April the 1st. So basically there was time to call off the attack and never, nonetheless Argentina maintained this course, um, counting with 
in, in theory, all of the information that could have been at disposal, right? Uh, also, afterwards, on really on one one day after the invasion, um, Argentina knew of the deployment of the British ship and could have also withdrawn from the islands um, and and did. And the third piece of information uh, against this miscalculation hypothesis is that actually the military planning that Argentina showed uh, by the, in the invasion itself shows enough personnel to face a British response. And there was even planning uh, of a possible second border, second front of the war against uh, Chile in, in the continent, which means that actually the Argentine military were expecting potentially a war, uh, both in the islands and even in, in the continent. So the the contribution, um, I think, of, of your piece, is, as I read it, is this kind of alternative account, this alternative explanation that you put forward. Um, and this is based on prospect theory. So for, for listeners who may not be familiar with, just give us a, a kind of brief explanation of what prospect theory is. Of course. So prospect theory is a theory in behavioral economics that predicts people make different decisions depending on whether they think they are losing or winning. In particular, and in relation to this research, it predicts that humans seem to be more willing to take risky decisions if they are in the domain of, or what in the context of the theory is called the domain of losses. So the simplest example that I find to explain this succinctly is that of a gambler in a casino, uh, because it's a feeling that anyone who has been in the situation of gambling kind of knows. Even if the chances of winning in the roulette, say, by betting to the red color is slightly below 50%, the impulse to bet one more time is much higher when we are losing. When we're winning, we tend to be loss averse. But when we're losing, we tend to be risk prone. We might even try to bet twice as much to recover what we had at the beginning. If we are, if we continue to do so, at some point, our behavior will seem irrational from a rationalist perspective. This bias, which is, on the other hand, the reason why casinos make money, make money potentially, is apparently inherent to every human being. Or that, that is at least what experimental evidence has found out systematically since this theory was first formulated in the 1970s. So humans do not behave 100% rationally. This is according to an unbiased calculation of expected utility, but are willing to take more risk when they suffer losses. It seems to be embedded in our genes, and some even argue that it's a sort of evolutionary trait. So key to the whole thing is the idea of a reference point, which is what people usually expect or feel entitled to. Uh, in the case of a gambler who entered the casino with 100 pounds, the reference point would be this 100 pounds. The utility of 100 extra pounds, therefore, will be greater to the gambler if he has zero pounds in his pocket. That is, if he has 100 pounds or 200 pounds, uh, the, the utility of 100 extra pounds will decrease. Uh, if in his quest to regain his initial 100 pounds, I think this gambler lost 100 pounds. And so if, if when he's trying to regain them, uh, the gambler has been losing and losing more and more money, say he is 500 pounds under, he will see all that money as what, in the context of this theory, we call sunk costs. And sunk costs are seen as some sort of investment. People uh, are under the illusion because they cannot, they do not update this reference point that, in this case, betting more and more will make sense when they recover their initial 100 pounds. 
Okay, that, that, that I think that gives us a really nice overview of, of kind of prospect theory um, independently. Tell, uh, tell our listeners then how uh, prospect theory, um, what would it predict in this case with respect to the Hunter's decision? Yeah, so, so in this case, instead of talking about pounds, we're talking about territory and the 100 pounds uh, basically would be whatever Argentina thought that it had at the beginning of the game, right? And uh, which in this case was the Falklands. So in the case of Argentina, because the Falklands Malvinas were regarded as a territorial loss to be recovered and the military had invested heavily and for years in building up the military capacity to retake the islands, the theory would predict that Argentine, Argentine military would have been willing to take up high risk, very high risk, to actually recover those investments and get back to their reference point, which in this case corresponds to having the island. Right? Um, at this point, it might be even a good idea to disclose that I am an Argentine myself, and this is both to warn the audience to take my interpretations with a grain of salt on the one hand, uh, but also to make an important point that is often missing to non-Argentines, um, which is that all Argentines believe that the Falklands are actually Argentinas. Right? This sounds quite incredible uh, for, for foreigners, but in Argentina, we're taught since we are in primary school that the Falklands uh, basically are an integral part of our territory. We sing even an anthem to the islands, and they appear daily in the maps that we use at school and our daily life. So um, in principle, Argentines think that Argentina uh, uh, owns the islands, and when you know about the British presence in the island, it feels as a loss. So uh, it is uh, absolutely natural for us that, that this, uh, this territorial situation would feel as a loss. Um, so the predictions of the theory for an elite under this mindset are that uh, the systematic risk-taking behavior would take place, and that this risk-taking behavior, as with the gambler, will become more and more extreme the higher the sunk cost. This is the higher investment in military material that was devoted to the recovery of the islands themselves. Um, we also predict that militarization should have increased um, in general, not just in the moment of the war, and that the war uh, would be better explained perhaps as just one among many episodes of militarization, uh, just that this one happened to escalate to the levers of war, right? But this this was an inclination of the, the junta that was systematic to take more and more risky action to recover the islands. Okay. Um, I think that takes us then to your findings. So what were, what, were, what were your key findings with respect to this kind of application of, of prospect theory to the decision to invade? So in the same way that we tested the other hypothesis by just laying out their observational implications in sort of a sequence and, and tracing back to see if all the evidence fits the narrative, well, when we do the same um, with, with the theory that I just briefly laid out, we find evidence for all of the above, right? So first, uh, we find that the prospect theory mindset was actually present. Uh, in effect, the, the classified documents we consult show evidence that this lost framework was very present. And uh, the military were seeing islands uh, as something that had to be recovered and were interpreted 
all of their recent investment in ships, aircraft, military mil- missiles, and uh, all type of military material as this sort of sunk cost or investment that had to be paid for by actually you know a military victory in this uh, in this regard. Uh, furthermore, we, we show that the decision-making context, which was one of utter isolation of the high command, was particularly prone to cause these kind of biases. And on the more behavioral side, we also find evidence that uh, there was increasing militarization that was uh, concurrent with this increase in military investment, and that the war was triggered ultimately by the escalation of more and more severe frictions. Um, so one member of the general staff puts it very nicely in one phrase that we cite there in the article when he says that the Malvinas were occupied as a consequence of a series of incidents, graver and graver, which culminated with the decision to take the islands without thinking if the opportunity was good or bad. So it feels like, given the the project that we've just discussed, that there might be an interesting parallel here with President Putin's calculations on whether to invade Ukraine. And I should mention that we're recording here on Tuesday, 22nd of February, and we already know that Putin has sent in peacekeepers to two of the separatist regions. So it's quite possible that the time we publish this podcast, um, uh, things may look quite different in in Ukraine. Um, But many people may struggle to see how Putin could advance his interests by launching a a full-scale invasion. Um, And on that conclude... On that basis, they might conclude that he he won't go ahead. Would it be fair to say that you know your analysis, if we were to transfer it to Russia, leads to the conclusion that we shouldn't be so confident that he won't invade? Yes, I think there are some clear parallelisms, in particular that in particular could explain reactions of Putin or actions of Putin that might seem as reckless or irrational from a Western perspective, right? So. I think one of the takeaways of our argument is that you really have to make an effort to get into the mind of uh, the decision makers in these situations because they might be under certain, not just domestic situations that could be dealt rationally, but also suffering from these cognitive biases, right? So, for example, it seems to me that us Argentines, uh, it is fair to say that Russians, and Putin in particular, see Ukraine as their entitled area of influence, but not just because of the ethnic bonds with local Russians, but most importantly, as a piece of land that was historically Russian and therefore is better represented as a loss uh, for them to be recovered rather than a gain to be pursued. So another uh, interesting thing about prospect theory is that if you win territory, you are you update your, or you win anything, you update um, very quickly <clears throat> this reference point. But if you lose you, you don't update it, right? If So if you go to the casino and you win 100 more pounds, then you think you had 200 at the beginning, but you didn't. Uh, and you start using that as your, your new framework. Uh, so it's it seems that there is a mismatch, perhaps in this particular conflict, between the perception of Ukraine by the West as a territory that was always part of the West and the perception of Ukraine by, by Russia in this case. Under this persuasion, it is likely that Putin has seen all his investment in military capability also as making sense in the context of a broader plan to restore Russia to its former territorial extension. So if Putin sees his military buildup as sunk cost in the context of uh, prospect theory, uh, unless the plan pays off, um, his risk-taking propensities 
might even get higher and higher if he continues in this direction. Uh, it is also true that militarization of disputes in the Russian periphery has been constant uh, since Putin became uh, the Russian leader. And it is also potentially fair to equate Putin's inner circle um, and his adepts uh, as very similar to what was happening in the context of the Argentine junta, right? So I just read in The Economist that, for instance, uh, the group that he assembled to decide upon this recent intervention in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, basically all favored uh, the invasion. There were three people that voiced that perhaps it would be a good idea uh, to have uh, one more round of diplomatic conversation out of 13, which seems that everyone in his clo close circles is in the same mindset, right? So if prospect theory is a factor explaining Mr. Putin's behavior, then leaders in the West uh, would be probably better off trying to understand first uh, what are the potential biases that are in the grid in uh, this apparent like, recklessness or uh, irrationality. And also maybe find ways to de-bias Russia, which in general, this is potentially true also for what happened to Argentina. This would have required more diplomatic interaction and making the, the government aware of what is the perception of the situation in, in, by foreign powers, right? Uh, but of course, this seems to be highly unlikely now, and the situation of Russia seems to be in the other direction of farther and farther isolation. Lewis, thank you so much for this discussion um, about the paper. Um, just to reference, the article we've been discussing is called Was the Malvinas Falklands a Diversionary War? A Prospect Theory Reinterpretation of Ar Argentina's Decline. It's by my colleague Lewis Scannoni, Sean Braniff, and Jorge Batalino, and it was published in Security Studies in 2020. Um, it's a fabulous paper. It's really well written. So I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, and there's surely some insight as Lewis has been giving us um, with respect to the current situation in Ukraine now. Next week, we're going to discuss social trust. Why does it matter and how can it be increased? As ever, to make sure you don't miss out on that or future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Jennifer Hudson. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>